Welcome to everybody. Thank you for being here today in person. Thank you for being here online today. I will tell you, I am so glad that we are back in person, even though it's not our whole group. First of all, I, I heard from so many of you, you were, you were so encouraging about um, the, the live streaming class last week. Of course, you've got that very interesting view into the little, you know, my little computer nook in our upstairs guest room, which was, uh, you know, we were talking about the Battle of Armageddon during Snowmageddon. And um, I, I will just tell you that uh, I, I thought I would be used to the whole virtual thing by now, but I realized I, I am just not. I, it was, I don't know what it was, you know, back in the spring, it was different being in here and preaching to a camera and at least having two or three people in here as opposed to being in my upstairs guest room, which has become my command center for COVID and snow and everything like that, and, and just preaching to my computer. I was, preaching, I was talking to this computer. So Ash Wednesday and Thursday morning, it was just bizarre because the thing is at least, you know, on, first of all, this is my environment. I don't care if it's I mean, you may care if it's two of you and me and I'm standing up here and talking to you like this, but, but you know, a congregation of five, two or more gathered, that, that's what, what I love. Um, Zoom, I can deal with because at least with Zoom or, or a kind of a, a meeting format, there's, there's at least some feedback. Y'all, I didn't, I mean, I was sitting here talking to my computer and it was like I was preaching to a mirror that was three seconds behind. And so I'm, I'm sitting here trying to, trying to do my Ash Wednesday meditation and trying to teach this, trying to teach this. And I will, I will confess that about 30 minutes before we started this class last week, I was, I was kind of praying that, we, that, that our power might go out. <laughs> and I might have an excuse to say, oh, we aren't gonna be able to do it today because that was just, that was miserable. I mean, it, it, and not, I mean, it, the content matter was the same, but it, it's just not being with y'all and, and having that, that connection. And, you know, it's, 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 it's so nice to be back in person with you all. So thank you. But, but I do want to say thank you so much for continuing to, to tune in, as they say, and be a part of this online. It's, you know, we have been blessed with the technology to be able to continue so many things. Um, I will say that my belief is that the internet has, and, and live streaming has ruined the snow day. I think, you know, I, th I think every now and then we do need some built-in snow days where we just shut down um, and we just say, well, we're not going to try and get everything done. We're just going to, we're just going to take this as a, as a bonus Sabbath from the Lord. And we're just going to do that. Um, but anyway, we're back today. I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty energized. I've had a lot of coffee this morning. Uh, so this, this should be a lot of fun. I hope that you were as desperate as it was last week. I hope you were able to watch last week because we did um, cover some things and I'm, I'm gonna pick up from that, uh, from that uh, today, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. My mic on, there we go. Last week, as we were talking about verses, uh, chapter 16 and 17, we started talking about different expressions or symbols of God's judgment. We talked about the bowls and the pouring out of God's wrath as yet one more wake up call, one more judgment um, on the world uh, or one more round of tribulations on the world, but we are also introduced to another symbol, another person, another embodiment of a concept, um, and, and perhaps in the future, literal being, which is this person called the harlot, the harlot of Babylon. Um, and we talked about that quite a bit last week. 
Uh, but just as a refresher, it's important to, to understand both the harlot and the city of Babylon that we're going to be discussing today, kind of in, a, in an extended system that I've introduced to you before. If you look over there on the side of your sheet, you'll see a chart that looks something like this. Uh, it says on one side, forces of good and forces of evil. Um, and you remember a few weeks ago, I introduced to you the idea of the counterfeit trinity. That is, that parody, that blasphemy, that, uh, that mockery of the real trinity in which God the Father is parodied or counterfeited by Satan, by the devil. And then God the Son, the Lamb, is then, is then counterfeited by the Antichrist. And then finally, God the Holy Spirit is, the, is counterfeited by the anti-Holy Spirit or the false prophet, the beast from the sea. Uh, excuse me, the beast from the earth or the false prophet. And so I, we, talk, we talked about this counterfeit trinity that is trying to replace, that will try to replace the actual authentic holy trinity. Well, even though the, the trinity stops at three to be sure, there's, there continues to be an extension of this family tree or this system, if you want to think about it that way. And it, and it has to do with the expressions of this, this trinity in the world, or, in a, or I should say, uh, in the life of humanity. And so, and what's, what's written up there is the same as on your sheet, so if you can't see it on the, on the screen. Um, but basically, what we talked about last week was the harlot. And the harlot becomes sort of the, the human manifestation of the, of, the, of the blasphemy of the beast becomes, the, the, becomes the, the people who follow the beast. The harlot, as you remember from the book of Hosea, for example, or other places in the Old Testament, it comes to be a symbol of God's adulterous wife or his people in adultery. For example, Israel in rebellion against God represented as a prostitute in the, in the prophet Hosea. You know, the harlot being the idea that not only is, is it a harlot, but this is God's, you know, God's betrothed who is committing adultery with other pagan forces, with other pagan powers. It, it has to do, that this, this idea of the harlot has to do with the idea of spiritual infidelity, spiritual adultery, paganism, false belief, atheism, you know, all of those things, any belief that stands over and against God, idolatry, whatever it is. And the harlot, in the same way that the, that the, the antichrist, the first beast represents the, the parody of Christ, the harlot comes to represent the parody or the counterfeit church. So if the church is the bride of Christ, then the harlot is the anti-church. Those who follow, those who, who have the mark of the beast and the number of his name, those who have given their allegiance to Satan and to the counterfeit Trinity. And so as we, we look at the harlot today, as we, that will be a part of our discussion, but there's one more extension to this system that I want to show you today because this is what we're talking about in chapter 18. And that is Babylon or the city who is the lover of the harlot and the antichrist. This is, you know, if we want to think about it in these, these terms, Babylon is the counterpoint to Jerusalem. Like, for example, when we get to the end of Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem 
coming down. And that is a, a kind of a metaphor, a symbol for the kingdom of God, God's reign on earth. And so if, if Jerusalem, if the holy city represents that, that manifestation of God's kingdom in creation, Babylon represents the anti-Jerusalem, the anti-kingdom of God. And what we see in, this, in our chapter today is, is the fall of this anti-kingdom. And we also see, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the relationship between the harlot and the kingdom or the harlot and the city. But what I want you to see is, is that you, know, you have here the, the, the church, the bride of Christ, man, sort of represented as an individual person, represented as a, um, you know, as a bride or a harlot. And what we have, when we take it to the next level, at the kingdom level, we have that single person kind of blown up and amplified and, and representing, or we have that blown up and replaced by a city. And what is a city? It's a bunch of people, right? It's a kind of, it's, it's a big group. And, and that, comes to, to beca- that, that comes to be an important metaphor, an important symbol, an important, and even an important reality in the rest of Revelation. So again, the, if the church is the bride of Christ, the harlot is the anti-church. If, the new Jerus- if, if Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem represents the, the coming kingdom of God, the new city of God, the new creation, then Babylon represents civilization in rebellion against God. So that, I wanted to kind of give you that overview before we get into the details. I want to say that today... Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example of that. Sodom and Gomorrah was sort of, that was the original version of this, and then kind of Babylon sort of, sort of beat it out in a tournament play or something like that. Um, but what, so what we have is we have this system that, that will play out a little bit more in what we're reading today. Now, what I wanted to tell you, too, is that today is really kind of part one of a two-part series. We're not going to try and get through the whole outline today. We're actually going to go through about half of it. Um, but next week's outline will be a regurgitation of that second half. Because what we're talking about really is the fall of the harlot and the rising of the bride of Christ. We've, we're, this is, again, all part of the judgment cycle. Um, but it's, it's the fall of the bride, excuse me, the fall of the harlot and the rising of the bride. Concurrently, the fall of Babylon and the rising of the new kingdom city of God, Jerusalem. So we'll, we will come to all of that. But I want to I want to talk about this idea of the city and its importance as a symbol. You know, of course, if if the harlot sort of represents sinful humanity and almost at the individual level, the the whole idea that that I'm rebelling against God, that I you know that I am um, you know, I am drinking the cup of blood of the saints. You know, I, you know, it's like I don't care about anybody else. I'm just about consuming. You know, I'm just about, you know, worshiping, you know, worshiping Satan. I've given up, I've thrown over God's authority for, for my autonomy, all those things. It's sort of that individual idea. The idea of Babylon joining that individual idea, that spiritual rebellion to the collection of humanity and civilization, that's where you get the idea of the unholy city. So it's not just one person, it's not just individual. It's the, it's the idea that, that Satan... And his, and his counterfeit trinity, Satan and his lies, Satan and his ways have, have totally infected 
civilization. Because you think, for example, when we talk about Babylon, we're not just talking about the city of Babylon, we're talking about the empire. We're talking about the, you know, that culture. We're talking, you know, when we talk about Rome in the ancient world, you know, you could be talking about Rome and you could, I mean, you could be talking about a Roman who lived in Britain or who lived in Germany or lived in Spain. But, you know, the whole idea was, you know, Rome is wherever Romans are. And so there's that close connection between identity and place. And when we, come, when we move into this, I, I think this is actually a more familiar concept than we might, uh, than we might otherwise consider. Um, this, uh, the chapter that we read today, chapter 18, is about the city of Babylon. And what I want you to think about is that every city has an identity. Every city kind of has a personality. Um, you know, for example, uh, you think about, you know, think about New York, you know, New York, what, what do they call New York? It's the city that never sleeps. The city so nice, they named it twice, New York, New York, you know, um, you know, or you think about, uh, you think about, say, for example, Las Vegas, what do they call Las Vegas? Sin city. Why is that? Well, who can figure, you know, well, you know what in, in, in South Carolina, we call Charleston, the holy city. Why? because that's the place as far as anybody in South Carolina is concerned where all life began. The Garden of Eden was somewhere near Middleton Plantation. Um, it is, you know, Charleston is the, is the place where the Ashley and Cooper Rivers come together to form the Atlantic Ocean. It's, I mean, you know, we, that's just sort of the concept there. Or you have, for example, um, you, you have Austin. You know, what's, what, what's the personality of Austin? It's weird. They even put that on bumper stickers. They love that. Keep Austin weird. Um, you know, of course, you've got, you've got Paris, the city of lights. Rome, which is still known as the eternal city. You, so every city sort of has a personality, doesn't it? Um, I remember, you know, I mean, that was one of the really interesting things when I went to college and I started meeting people from all over the country. And I started to realize people are, really are different and, and where they come from does make a difference. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that, you know, in my position, I really do have to learn a lot of names. And, and I, I will confess that even though a lot of people think that I'm really good with names, but I'm really not. It's, 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 a, it's a challenge for me. It's something I have to work on. As a matter of fact, um, I've noticed over the years that I am much more likely to remember a person where they're, uh, I'm much more likely to remember where they're from than, where the, than what their name is. And, you th and think about that for a second. Knowing something about where somebody's from tells you something about them, perhaps. Maybe not necessarily. But it also, but, but a name in our culture doesn't necessarily. For example, my name, Bob, Robert, and does anybody even know the name or what that name means? I looked it up once and I think it was just like, it, they came up with this, the definition of Robert as kind of a, I think to sell bumper stickers or nameplates, but it means, it means, it means illustrious leader. I mean, it's like, you know, you know who, who would put like, you know, nobody would name their kid Robert if it meant big loser. Okay. Um, but, but nobody, but we don't think about that. We don't think about the name, you know, like John meaning something. John, you know, John may not tell me anything about something, but if John's from New York, okay, now we're getting somewhere. If John's from Dallas, I'm, you know, if, if I meet a John from New York, my mind is going to start to flip categories, right? If I meet a John from Dallas, same thing. If I meet a, an, a Betsy from Tampa, that's going to be different from a Betsy from Seattle, maybe. Not necessarily, 
But there are some things, every city has a personality and the people we tend to, who live in that city tend to imbibe the personality of that city. Uh, for example, San Antonio is the mission city. And, and you know, I picked up on, uh, on that very quickly when I moved here and I realized how much the mission history, but also that culture is a part of who we are. And so, you know, every city has an identity and every, every, every city has a personality. And so, you know, as we look at different cities, you know, whether, um, uh, you know, I, I don't even, this may be Chicago or whether it's New York or Washington, D.C., you know, all of these cities have a distinctive personality. They begin to mean something. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things about, about Washington, D.C. is that Washington, D.C. was a planned city. It was, you know, it was built on a swamp. So when President Trump used to talk about the swamp, that, that was literal too. It, was, it really was built on the swamp on the banks of the Potomac. But it was also built specifically the architecture, the design, the monuments, everything were built to humble and to intimidate foreign dignitaries. I mean, here was a young, a young nation that wanted people to take them seriously. And so when we started building the Capitol, the architects were, were told and they were motivated to, you know, to build the structures in a way that was imposing. They wanted you to feel like you were coming to a Rome or some other eternal city. They didn't want somebody coming from London to come to London, to come to Washington and say, look at this one horse town. They wanted you to come in and be intimidated, whether you're from Paris or Berlin or wherever it was. And so, you know, so that is kind of the character of that city. And it's designed in a very specific way. You, you are not allowed to build a, a building that is taller than the Capitol Dome. I don't even think it can be that tall. I forget exactly what the restriction is, like five to seven stories. Um, now, that's just in D.C. There's plenty of skyscrapers in the in the in Nova and places like that. But, but, you know, it does, you know, whatever it is, you know, every city just sort of has its own distinctive personality. And what the reason for that is because a city is not just a point of geography. A city is a complex system of relationships and culture and people and all of these other things. A city in many ways is a living organism. If your body is a living organism made up of different cells, a city is a living organism of which the cells are people. And, you know, God understood this. The people back then understood this. And so, you, you know, very often people were identified primarily with their, with their city, if not with their city, with their tribe, if not with their tribe, with their family. The, the idea of collective identity was very strong in the ancient world, probably even more so than in ours. And so as we see the harlot representing the idea of the person or people or humanity rebelling against God, the city becomes sort of the collective idea of that. You and I know that every person who lives in Las Vegas is not a gambling, sinning mobster, right? We do know that, right? Okay, I mean, if you know people from Las Vegas, if you don't know anybody from Las Vegas, meet somebody from there and you'll, you'll discover that. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, when I lived in the Gulf, Augusta, Georgia, as a matter of fact, this happened yesterday because I was wearing a, a master's, uh, master's sweater. Um, somebody said, oh, you must be a golfer. I was like, no, I, I'm really not. I mean, I play at golf, but it's like just because I'm wearing an Augusta National shirt doesn't mean that I'm a golfer. But people assume that if you're from Augusta. 
And so, you know, and so we, we assume, we make assumptions about people because of this, and because of this city identity. And the Bible is leveraging that to help us understand the way that civilization works, the way that, that, that people work when in system together. And what we see in chapter 18 is a representation of all of humanity's rebellion and adultery and paganism and idolatry and all that represented not only in the person of the harlot, but represented also in the, in the collective identity of the city of Babylon. Now, Jay just brought up a second ago that, that when we think about really sinful places in the Bible, we think about, we typically think about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, and, and I think that's not inappropriate because Sodom and Gomorrah represents that, that lust. It represents that perversion. It represents that brutality, all of those things. But by the time of the New Testament, it's not that Sodom and Gomorrah had been forgotten by any means, but we have to remember the epic scale of the destruction of Jerusalem perpetuated by Babylon. Babylon didn't just come in and, and, and occupy Jerusalem. The Babylonian armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the 500s came in and destroyed the place. They burned it. They, they massacred the people. They, took, they hauled off others in chains. It was, I mean, it was, a, it was really a holocaust, and I don't use that term lightly. And so Babylon, destroying Jerusalem, became in the Jewish psyche, in the psyche of the people of God, the, the idea of an earthly power destroying God's people on earth. So Babylon became the manifestation of that earthly kingdom. So let's pick up at, at chapter 18 and beginning in verse one, because Babylon we see does not survive. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out in a, in a mighty voice, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of, her passion, of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, what we need to understand about this pronouncement is that this is a judgment. There are, two, there are really two parts to it. There is the announcement that Babylon is falling, that Babylon is going to be destroyed. But what you see here are both the indictments and the punishment. You know, it's, you know, in other words, she, you know, she's become a, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, unclean birds, unclean and detestable beasts. You know, that means those are all things you can't eat. It's not like good, good rich cattle or, or you know, food stock here. These are, these are the despicable animals of the earth, so to speak. Um, but it's a place for demons to live. It's a place, you know, where, where people are harassed and tortured by these things every day. It's about, you know, crime and poverty and all these sorts of things taking over. This is both the indictment and the punishment. The whole idea being from Romans 1 that, you know, one of the worst sins that, or one of the worst punishments that God can give you for your sin is to allow you to continue to dwell in it, to live in separation from him until that finally carries you to your destruction. 
And so what we see here is that Babylon is this city that has become this cesspool of corruption that, the, that, uh, that has now drawn the attention of God. It, it, I guess what this means is that the sin of earth, the sin of humanity, and the sin of civilization has gotten to the point where God has said, enough is enough. We're back to the point of Noah, you know, the time of Noah. God said, I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood again, so let's try fire. But we're, that, we're back to that point again where God has said, enough is enough. And, you know, I, you know all of us kind of, you know, reached that point. I, I, I realized that I was really and truly a dad. When I started looking around at the kids, the stuff my kids were exposed to and the things that, that were going on in the world and, and all that kind of stuff, and I started thinking, huh, wasn't like that when I was a kid. Oh, I just said that. Has it really gotten that much worse? Yeah, seems like it to me. Now that doesn't mean that history doesn't cycle around and it doesn't get better and worse at different times, but all of us have a sense at some point or another, it's like, how much more of this is God gonna allow? How much, how much till God says enough is enough? And I think the fact that we are still alive today is just proof positive of God's unbelievable mercy. But Babylon comes to represent civilization in total rebellion, in total corruption, and total brokenness. So the harlot is, you know, is the church, is the, is the sort of the individual believer. And the city represents that collective identity. But it also brings with it the idea that with numbers come power. So this is also, this is also the idea that civilization has political power. And it's not just that, that, that people have changed their allegiances, but it's that the kingdom of God is, is being taken over or is being replaced by the kingdom of Satan, by the kingdom of the Antichrist, by the kingdom of the, of the, anti, uh, uh, of the anti-prophet, the, by, the, by the kingdom of the counterfeit trinity. That God is being replaced, the city of God is being replaced by the city of Babylon. So we see this upheaval that now God is going to throw down. So we look at the, you know, we read this, and fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is this, represents the, you know, the, the anti-church and the anti-civilization coming together. Um, what's interesting historically is that Babylon has not always been sort of a neutral metaphor for, you know, for just humanity or civilization gone awry. Just like people of every situation have been, have been willing to take the, take the idea of Antichrist and say, well, that must be this person. You know, the, the Antichrist must be Hitler, must be Pol Pot, must be Mao, must be whoever it is. You know, we, every generation has their antichrist that they say, that's the, that's the person, that's the guy. In the same way, just about every generation has said, aha, you know, that's the Babylon. You know, that, you know, it's, it, it's so, you know, it's, it's one of the fun things about moving to Texas is you realize outside of Texas, Texas is this one great big Lone Star unified state. 
You come inside Texas, as soon as you cross the border, it is like ancient Greece. It's a kingdom of city-states. And so, so people in Houston would say about people in Dallas, ha, that's the new Babylon, you know, and vice versa. You know, that's like us in Austin, maybe. Um, but, you know, there's always that idea that in, in every generation, so, for example, in, in the 40s, Berlin becomes the new Babylon. Um, in the early church, the new Babylon, or what they felt like was the visible manifestation of Satan in charge of civilization was Rome. And just as they would identify the Antichrist as, or Caesar as an Antichrist, Diocletian, Domitian, whoever the Caligula, whoever the, the emperor was at the time with the spirit of Antichrist, Rome came to, be, came to represent the new Babylon and kind of became code, and Babylon became code for Rome. And I'm not just talking about in, uh, you know, within Revelation. I'm talking about in, you know, in, in just everyday conversation. Christians would not talk about the atrocities of Rome because that could get you crucified. We talk about the atrocities of Babylon because what did the Romans care what you thought about Babylon? And so there was, you know, so there was some of that code going on. And that's interesting because that, you know, because Rome represented not only you know, the, the might of its army, the scope of its empire, but it also represented this false worship, this marriage between false worship, idolatry, and the state. The Romans, in some ways, perfected the idea of the, the divine dictator, the whole idea that, uh, that an emperor could be a god. Now, certainly the Egyptians believe that, and other cultures have believed that, but but the, but the Romans, at least within the context of the Bible, they really believed that, especially the, as they got crazier and crazier, really began to believe that, that you know, we, we must be divine. We must be, we could not possibly have all this power if we were not gods. And so the cult of the emperor became a thing. You can worship whatever, whatever other gods you want to worship, but at some point you have to say, Kaiser Curious, Caesar is Lord as opposed to Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Jesus curious, Christos curious. And so this, you, know, you had this wedding of, uh, you had this horrible wedding of secular power and religious power. Now what's interesting is that that metaphor for Rome being the, Bab the new Babylon didn't end with the fall of the pagan Roman Empire. The pagan Roman Empire, of course, um, it's hard to say when it fell, if it really ever did. I mean, at some point it just sort of faded more than fell, and it was supplanted by Christian versions of the same empire. I, I make the argument that the Roman Empire didn't really fall till 1456, just a few decades before Columbus discovered America, because that was the, the fall of Constantinople. Um, that side note, but, um, but, there, but through the Middle Ages, the force that became the unifying force, the unifying power in Europe anyway, was the Roman Catholic Church. And especially during the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church and the See of Rome became the, the new Babylon in the eyes of Europeans. It's debauchery and everything was manifest in 
the personage of the Pope and the city of Rome itself. Um, yeah, and you say, well, Bob, why do you say that? I mean, you know, we know that Luther railed against the Roman Catholic Church, and we know that Calvin had, you know, he, he, you know, he declared the Pope Antichrist and all these sorts of things. Yeah, of course, but did they ever call him Babylon? Absolutely. One of Luther's most famous, uh, most famous theological works is a book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, which is about the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> So this idea of associating Rome with Babylon is old and well-established within Christian culture. And every generation tends to have their, to have their, you know, their, you know, their, their finger pointed at that city that to them represents manifest evil. I mean, and so, I mean, just listen to the way, listen to the way some people talk about Washington these days. <laughs> well, in Washington, blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, or, you know, I mean, you know, it's on the international scale. It's not that the Chinese are doing something. It's Beijing is doing something. Moscow is doing something. You know, something I'm not proud of is, you know, the fact that in our old PCUSA days when when I would be really upset about the denomination, I would say it was Louisville that was doing something. Or if it was more localized, it was Columbia, you know, kind of whoever was messing with me at the time. But, the, but again, we, every generation and every perspective tends to have that, that place that they point to say, there is evil. There is the problem. And for the, and for the early church and the church through the Reformation, really in the Reformation, there was plenty of time in between where it was not as much of a problem. Rome became that symbol of Babylon on earth, and God was going to bring it down. Now, why is this? The, the angel pronounces Babylon's fate in verse 2, and he cried out mightily with a loud voice, saying, uh, saying Babylon the great is fallen, fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and uh, and hated bird. It says, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. I mean, again, what does that mean? Her, her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Her sins stink to heaven. Her sins stink to high heaven. And it, you know, it's, it's almost language reminiscent of the namesake of Babylon, which comes from another story in the Bible, which is what? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, Babylon, I mean, that is, that's not just a rhyming connection, that's, that's, there's actually a connection there. And the whole idea in the, in the Tower of Babel story was what? That the people had become so full of themselves that they violated God's one command to them since the time of Noah, which was what? What did God command in the time of Noah? God blessed Noah and he said, he told his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But what did the people of Babel do instead? Instead of, I mean, they were fruitful, they multiplied, but did they fill the whole earth? No. What did they do instead? They got all together in the same place and they said, what? Let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves. 
Instead of spreading God's glory through the earth, they said, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We're gonna show that we're in charge. We're gonna build this incredible monument, this ziggurat, this tower, a staircase to heaven, so we can finally go and push God off his throne and put us there because we're the ones who should be there. And so when we see this language of Babylon and her sins reaching up to heaven, it is reminiscent of the Tower of Babel in which people said, we don't need God, we can do this all on our own. But in their pride, God put them back down. Now what's sad about this is that even though God is, you know, is sending tribulations, chastening, disciplining, all of these things, one of the things we read in verse, uh, verse excuse me, six is, it says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of, for her in the cup that she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like a measure of torment and mourning. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. She says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Now here's, here's kind of a compliment to what we read last week, where God would pour out the bowls of wrath and people would, instead of repenting, they would do what? They would curse God. And now here is the harlot in Babylon saying, I'm queen here. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. You know, I can do whatever I want. It's the ultimate version of not taking God seriously. And so the corruption of Babylon just, just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. The harlot lives in total denial of her sin and judgment. And so as we, break, as we continue to break this down, I want to take a look at verse 3 because we see in this an interesting analysis of civilization and, and where the problems in civilization fall. And we see in this, uh, in this, uh, in this situation or in this uh, passage, an interesting description of what I'm going to call an unholy alliance. What is this unholy alliance? Look at verse 3. For all the nations of the earth, earth have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You know, those, so in other words, they have totally bought into her, her lies, the ways of the beast, everything else. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And what God is doing is he's identifying an unholy alliance that has manifested itself in Babylon. Let's break that down for a second. You have the false church, the harlot, that has now teamed up with what? The government, the kings of the earth. But also, it is also teamed up with what? The merchants, enterprise, commerce, big business, small business, money, whatever you want to call it. So you have, you know, you, you have an interesting situation. Um, I, I think people are always, it's funny, whenever I talk about this stuff, I think people don't believe me that, that one of Hitler's, you know, one of Hitler's programs was to try and take over the church, began a, a movement called the Reich Church, and, and I, and, and, a lot of people haven't heard of it, and a lot of people, you know, when I talk about it, they think I'm just kind of making it up. But, um, but this is a picture of the altar in a Reich church. 
I mean, th these were actual institutions. They were actual Reich preachers. They were actually Reich versions of the Bible. Um, you know, that's not, I mean, you know, when, when we do a funeral up here and there's a veteran and we put, drape the flag across his casket or her casket, that's different from what you're seeing here. That's the permanent furniture in a church that's been taken over by the Reich church, the Reich Kirk type of, uh, type of theology. You see the cross up on the top, but much more prominent is the swastika over here. Swastika, uh, swastika is all over the place. But it is the total syncretism of the government and the church. This is the harlot riding on the back of the beast. Remember the, in, in, uh, last week, the harlot was riding on the back of this beast that was the color of blood, had many heads, many horns, all these symbols of earthly political power. And the two of them have become one. She's riding upon it. They've become, in a sense, one flesh. And so we see this unholy alliance between the people of Satan and the government, the, you know, the, the anti-church and, uh, and the government. But it's not, it doesn't just end with that. It's also about commerce. It's about business. You know, this is the, you know, people, people can take the idea that, yeah, yes, we have to, you know, we have to be careful about the relationship and the, and the excuses perhaps that, um, that the church makes when it gets too closely in bed with the government or with, with political power. But what about economic power? You know, it's, you know when, you, when you consider things like the slave trade, or you consider exploitation of people throughout history or human trafficking now, I mean, or just injustice, things like that. All these things based on commerce. And we see the, the, we see the government, we see the power structure nodding and winking and, and saying, and in a sense, blessing all of these things. Then we really do find ourselves in a blasphemous place. And, and one of the things that scripture brings to our attention is that we have to be really, 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 really careful that the people of God don't get in bed with the, with the government or the, or the kingdom of man. And we don't get too embed, you know, we don't get too deeply embedded that we don't get in bed with the kingdom of mammon. There is a danger in that. You know, when, you know, who, who controls, you know, who controls you? You know, do, does money control the church or does the church steward its money? Does the government control the church or does the church speak power, speak truth to power? You know, one of the things that, that happened in the, um, in the 1940s was that the evangelical church in Germany um, which is uh, represented by people like Karl Barth and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, Niemöller and others, they took a stand and they said, uh, they, they said and they wrote a, in, in a document called the Theological Declaration of Barman that Jesus Christ alone is head of the church and any other pretender, you know, any other um, pretense otherwise is idolatry because at the time the Reich Church was saying that no, Adolf Hitler is the head of the church. It's not the first time that's happened. Henry VIII declared himself the head of the church. Um, the Pope had for, you know, for generations declared himself the head of the church. That's why, that's why we Presbyterians in Scotland and what I've, what I've called and other people have called the Second Reformation, 
That's why we, we actually fought against becoming part of the Church of England um, or just becoming a, a bishop-driven church of Scotland because the necessary, one of the necessary adoptions in that process would have been to say that the king of England is head of the church or the king of Scotland is head of the church. And the Scottish Covenanter said, no, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he is the one to whom we answer. And this, you know, basically this whole chapter is, is God's warning about what happens when the people of God get too cozy with earthly power. What happens, seriously, when we sell out? What happens when we sell out to the state? What happens when we sell out to commerce? What happens when we sell out to political parties? What happens when we sell out to wealth? What happens when we allow any kingdom of earth to define the agenda or to rewrite the values of the kingdom of God. And what does God warn? That when that happens, Babylon falls and takes down everything else with it that opposes God. I mean, again, here is this warning that God is not just dealing with individuals, that God is dealing with civilization. The end game of Revelation is not just to remove his selected sheep from the world and just leave the world to its own devices. No, no, no. This is his creation, and he is going to remake the whole thing from top to bottom. And one day, the old Babylon will be replaced by the new Jerusalem. And it's important that we, we understand this concept because um, one of the things that we have to remember as people, and, this, and I'm going to end on this idea, is that we, as individuals, are shaped in the, in the cultures and in the communities in which we live. So whether it's a city or whether it's a political party or a gang or a school or a social club or whatever it is, we are shaped by the people around us. And there's a warning embedded in here that, that we, as followers of the Lamb, need to be more of an influence on the community than the community is on us. You know, I read this, and, and as I was talking about this last night, this is kind of a, a late addition to what I was going to say this morning because of something that I was thinking about since I taught this last night. Um, you know, we're a church that for, for decades has claimed to love the city. We are a church of the city. We are a church that loves the city. We're a church for the city. Um, we, you know, we love Jesus Christ, love one another, and we love the city. What does that mean? How do we read these passages and then apply that in our own lives? What does this mean for us? Are we, you know, are we simply, you know, as, as, a, as a church that is called to love the city, does that mean that we're supposed to stand over to the side and watch the city burn? Because just as easily as somebody could say that Rome is the new Babylon or, uh, or New York is the new Babylon or Washington, D.C. is the new Babylon, there are certainly people who could claim that San Antonio is the new Babylon. So are we, as the people of Christ, just called to, to stand and watch it burn? You know, who did that historically? That was Nero. 
<laughs> not, not any Christian martyr. Martyr. No, as lovers of the city, we're to pray for the city. We're to warn the city. We're to work for the good of the city, as, uh, as Isaiah says. We're to, uh, we're, to, we're to love the people here. You know, judgment belongs to God. We are called not just to love one another as, as Christ has loved us, but we are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And I think that one of the marks of the people of the Lamb is that even while all of this is going on, we are pleading with, we are preaching to, we are praying for the people of the city to say, please, 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 there's a God who loves you and there's a God who wants to save you and he gave his life for you. The harlot's cup is filled with other people's blood, but the cup of Christ is filled with his own blood because he poured it out for you. Trust him. Don't trust the one who wants to consume you. Trust the one who wants to save you. If we really love the city, then we need to take these verses seriously and ask ourselves, is this the fate that we want for our neighbors and our neighborhoods and the people around us? You know, because, I mean, even as, even as reformed people, as Calvinists, we don't just look at these people out here as neutral. We look at them as God's children, God's lost children. If they were our lost children, wouldn't we want somebody to bring them home? Wouldn't we want somebody to take care of them while they're living in the city? Wouldn't we want somebody to help them? And I'm not just talking about our homeless neighbors living under the bridge. I'm talking about people living in the richest zip codes of this city. Because it's, you know, notice in here, it doesn't say it's the poor under the bridge who are going to be weeping and they're gnashing their teeth. It's going to be the merchants who've drunk deeply of the luxury. It's going to be the powerful who have exercised the authority of the beast. All the people on top, they're the ones who are going to suffer the most in this situation. And don't we, don't we care about them too? Our call to love the city means that we have to take this seriously. You know, it's uh, I'll close, close with, again with this thought. Um, if you, it, one of the things that really kind of grabs me here is, is the way that Jonah, the story of Jonah, the way, the way Jonah ends his story. Um, if you remember the book of Jonah, God sent Jonah to Nineveh to tell them that he was about to do to, to Nineveh what Revelation shows he did to Babylon. And Jonah, after he went through the whole running away whale episode, he did. He went and he prophesied to Nineveh. And he, you know, and he said, God is going to wipe you out. And you are going to pay for your crimes. You are, you know, you are going down. And then what did he do? All right. Went up to the hill, built himself a little shade tree. Maybe pulled out a, you know, pulled out like a, you know, Weber Grill, started cooking up some burgers. Started, he was sitting down getting ready to watch the show, wasn't he? And what happened? Nothing. Why? Because the people of Nineveh repented. <laughs> In anybody else's book. I mean, I, mean, here, I mean, Jonah, guess what? You're a prophet who just saved a whole city. But Jonah was ticked off. He was disappointed. He wanted to see Nineveh go down. Isn't it sad when, when we as the people of God who know God's grace, 
We, you know, we're willing to warn, we're willing to prophesy, but we don't want to see people saved. We just want to see people judged. You know, it's like we want to, we, you know, we become Jonah's. Sadly, Jonah's, Jonah should have ended, I mean, his story should have ended in victory where he's running through the streets of Nineveh saying, yes, welcome home, brother. Welcome home. Instead, he's, he ends up disappointed. I don't want that to be our church. I don't want that to be us. You know, we, if we really believe that we are children of the living God and that he has called us to this city, we want to apply our efforts. We want to speak God's truth. We want to show his love because these are our brothers and sisters out here and we want to bring them to a closer intimacy with Jesus Christ and a closer relationship with us. So um, those are just some random thoughts that I have, but you know, as, you know this, this passage we've read today needs to compel us to pray for our city, to work for our city, um, and to love our city. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to pray for our city today. Um, it's so easy to point a finger and say that that city is Babylon, that those people are the harlot. But in reality, Lord, have we, have we not all fallen into this at some point or another? Have we not all imbibed in the sin and fornication and luxury of the counterfeit trinity? Haven't we allowed our appetites to get the better of us? Haven't we sought our own autonomy over your authority? Haven't we been glad at the times when we saw that others suffered but we did not and we say there but for the grace of God go I? Lord, these... These passages are not given to us so that we may boast, but Lord, so that we may fall down on our knees and thank you for your mercy and pray your mercy for others. Just as Abraham dared to haggle, to bid, and to appeal for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, help us to appeal, to haggle, to reach, to stretch for the people of San Antonio and beyond. Lord, help us to love our city, but also to take seriously the fact that you are remaking this world, that you are the judge and the redeemer, and that one day all the corruption that you have endured and that your people have endured will be brought to justice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.